I must say again, good morning to all of you who are watching online. Uh, it's always encouraging each week to see and hear of people who've been viewing online. So we're not unaware and we're very grateful for you taking the time to watch us uh, and join in with us and participate in the way that you can. Uh, this morning, friends, we are start starting a new teaching series where we're going to be looking at the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, you're going to want to turn there. Uh, I put some Bibles on the, shell, on the side over there at the back on tables because um, this morning uh, we're going to do quite a lot of reading. Um, and the challenge I find is that with a mix of people like this, we've got some people who've been reading the Bible for 60 years and some have been reading it for six days. And so some people know it backwards and can quote the Greek and some people didn't even know it was written in Greek. And that's the challenge we've got when we come together. The second challenge I find when you come to a new teaching series like this, 1 Corinthians, the gospel between the lines, the second challenge I find is there's just so much, there's so much juicy goodness. I feel like I'm robbing you um, by only taking 20 minutes or half an hour, or if you're really lucky, 40 minutes. Uh, I feel like I'm robbing you because there's so much that could be said. So what I thought I'd do to remedy that is basically to read three chapters and then to give you some minutes on your own just thinking about some questions to do with the text, okay? And then I'm going to speak off the back of that for 15 minutes, just one quick observation from the text. That's what we're going to do. That's partly my way of getting around the fact that I think there's so much we could talk about, but it's also I want you to hear the Bible for yourself because it is rich and beautiful. So that's the deal. I'm going to share a brief context to the letter, why it was written, etc. We're then going to read three chapters, and then you're going to have these questions to look at, think about on your own. Next slide, please. What stands out to you? So you're going to want to think about this as we're reading it. What stands out to you? What questions are you left with after the reading is over? And what does the Holy Spirit want to impress on you? So that might just be something that stands out. Um, and as I said, the Bible's scattered around. You can read them. You can look at them. Now... This that we're going to be reading, 1 Corinthians, is a letter written to a church, and that's important. It's not a spiritual tract. It's not a theological treatise. It is situational. It's addressing a particular situation and a particular time and place, and that's significant because so much of the New Testament is like that. It's written to real life, so it meets life head on, but we also need to understand the particular lives that it's trying to speak into. The ancient town of Corinth was a Greek, then turned Roman city here, uh, it was a major trading port and became very wealthy because of the amount of trade that would take place. If you wanted to travel from here and get things over to here, um, you could go around this really dangerous rocky area or you could go to Corinth and transport it that way. And so often that's what people did and it became as a result very wealthy. It was a, it was a town with a population of um, somewhere between 40 and 60,000 people at the time that Paul's writing. By the way, interesting fact I learned this week, in 1776, Seaford was larger in population than New York. I'll sit down now, shall I? <laughs> Nothing to do with the rest of the sermon, but, you know, interesting. I know. That's what you're going to remember now, isn't it? In fact, Seaford was larger than any city in America. Um, but there we go. So, Corinth is famous for its wealth, but it was also famous for its immorality. Uh, it was a city that people thought of as being a place you go to to throw off restraint and indulge yourself in pleasures. The word Corinthian had uh, essentially become a slang term that meant, like, player. Um, to be a Corinthian was to be promiscuous and to throw caution to the wind and indulge in your sexual appetites. And so as a result, the letter addresses 
issues to do with sexuality, issues to do with singleness. It deals with issues of identity, um, of uh, church services, community, communion, and of the resurrection. And those are some of the things that we're going to be talking about between now and Christmas. Some people from the city became Christians when Paul visited in Acts chapter 18. Um, but, as the saying goes, you can take the boy out of Corinth, but you can't take, the, can't take Corinth out of the boy. The, when you become a Christian, the Lord doesn't press a, an erase button on your past. He doesn't transform you completely. You are still very much a part of the, your family and your culture. And the gospel comes to your, to your situation and slowly starts to unpick all of the ways that we think that are Western or English or African and not biblical or, in this case, Corinthian. And so what happened was that before long, the Apostle Paul heard a report from Chloe's household, members of her household, tradesmen or family members that had visited him in Ephesus, in Turkey, where he's writing from. In fact, let's put the map back up. Um, there we go. Um, Paul is so he's writing to Corinth, but he's writing from Ephesus, which I believe is around here. I visited it once on holiday. It's around there, isn't it? Yes. Um, so that's where he's writing it from. And uh, the report comes to him, and it leads him to conclude, which he says in 1 Corinthians 11, your church services are doing more harm than good, which is not a good statement about any church. Within the church, there was infighting, arguments, division. Members of the church were taking other members of the church to court. People were spreading false teaching. Some members of the church were visiting prostitutes. Uh, others were committing incest, and some were getting drunk at communion, drunk on the communion wine. So it's that kind of church that Paul's writing to, a church that's a bit chaotic, to put it mildly, in a mess, in a muddle, and is very of its time, of the city of Corinth, and he's writing that to them to communicate how the gospel meets them where they're at and transforms them. So, with all of that context laid, we're going to read together the first three chapters of the letter, and, uh, and then, as I said, you're going to spend some time thinking about it. Here we go. Hold on a second. You'll appreciate that I turned the microphone off for that. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. Sosthenes, by the way, is likely to be uh, one of the rulers of the synagogue of Corinth who became a Christian. I won't do that with every verse, I promise. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I always thank God, my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you've been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who, I, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Which, by the way, is a, a remarkable introduction given what I've said about the church and the mess that it's in. He writes saying, I always thank God for you. Like, you're a great church. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Christmas and Gaius so that no one can say that they were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who's become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory to what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what mind has conceived, the things that God has paired for those who love him. Things, these are the things that God has revealed to us by his Spirit. Which is all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. Now, the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, 
mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task, I planted, Apollos watered, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are fellow workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. And by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is now building on it. But each one should build, should build with care. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives among you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise for the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. This is God's Word. So those are the first three chapters of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his first letter to the Corinthians. Uh, these are the questions that you're just going to spend a few moments thinking about writing on your phones or on pieces of paper you might have. And then I'm going to come and speak and share something off the back of that. So I'm going to give you five minutes to do that. Away you go. Has transformed the world ever since it transformed the lives of the Corinthians. It's transformed our lives. It means that the most fundamental question of our lives is what are you going to do about Jesus? And until a person's answered that, they're really living in denial um, or afterwards living in worship and wonder. Paul says essentially two things, though, that we're going to talk about, and that's this that the cross outsmarts human wisdom and overpowers human strength. It outsmarts human wisdom. And it overpowers human strength. What God did in sending his son to die on a cross and the subsequent transformation of that is that he took, uh, he took the symbol of mankind's greatest evil. The crucifix in the ancient world was a terrifying thing. He took that and turned that evil image into being a focus of wonder and love. 
Don Carson says that it would be similar in our day to the Hiroshima cloud or the gas chambers of Auschwitz, the way they fill us with fear or revulsion, being turned into an image of wonder and worship. More than that, the Apostle Paul goes on to say that the real power and authority in the world has been revealed. And it's actually quite offensive if you're listening. It's offensive. Paul says it's not Aristotle, it's not any philosophers, it's not Caesar, it's not the power in Caesar's armies. The real power and authority in the world is in Christ, the humiliated, tortured criminal. Now, from October the 31st, in a few weeks' time, the world leaders will be attending COP26 in Glasgow for a climate change conference. The expectation of the world is on their meeting. The world waits with bated breath, holding its breath as these men and women seemingly meet to decide the fate of our planet. But if someone was to tell you, actually, the real authority in the world is not there, It rests in the hands of some street kid from Mumbai who died in a gutter in obscurity. That's where the real power and authority in the world is. You might think someone's a little bit strange for saying that, but after a while, if you thought they were being serious, you'd rightly be offended. These men and women have trained all their lifetime. They've been devoted into power. They have power to make decisions that will affect the lives of every human citizen on the planet. Oh, no, but the real power is in that child in the slums. That's how shocking the gospel was and should be if we're understanding it. You see, the truth is that a poor, penniless criminal who died in obscurity without money enough even to purchase his own grave is the main voice and authority in the world. He's in charge. He decides. He's the one ultimately who decides who gets into power. The toppling of kings and governments is in his hands. When God acts in the world, though, most people miss it. And the Apostle Paul said the reason for this isn't because human beings you know, don't try hard enough. It's because we're too stupid. Or rather, we count, we score the wrong things. Now, we're very, very clever in our own eyes. We're technically brilliant. You know, we carry supercomputers in, our smart, uh, supercomputers in our pockets. We've put a man on the moon. We can perform laser eye surgery. We're on the brink of developing self-driving cars. But for all of its wisdom, the, Apo- the Apostle Paul says in verse 21, the world in its wisdom does not know God. It doesn't recognize it when God acts in the world. The German theologian and um, man who died in the German concentration camps, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said this. He said, Christianity preaches the infinite worth of that which is seemingly worthless and the infinite worthlessness of that which is seemingly so valued. The purpose of life, the reason you've been created is to know God, to rule in the world on behalf of him. If you're ruling in the world on behalf of self, or in your own interest, or even in the interest of your nation, even in the interest of the human population, if you're ruling in that interest, instead of being connected to the the one in whose image we've been made and told to rule on behalf of, we're missing the point. We're like the man who takes a flat-packed piece of furniture 
and builds a desk out of it instead of a bed because he couldn't be bothered to read the instructions. It's a very impressive desk. And people during the daytime will applaud his wisdom in the way that he built that desk. But come nighttime, he won't have anywhere to lay his head. And his foolishness will be revealed. So it is with the wisdom of man. The day is ending. The night will soon be upon us, Paul says elsewhere. You've been called to know him. Your life's purpose is bound up in him and in that crucified criminal. Now, the Corinthians in the church were squabbling over which leaders they thought were the most impressive. And as they did so, it revealed that they were still so worldly, Paul says it. They're still thinking in terms of celebrity and uh, human status. And so that's why Paul says, listen, I didn't come putting on a show. I didn't come to be a celebrity. In his day, the, the celebrities were the philosophers and the people who could hold an audience spellbound with their great oratory and conduct themselves with amazing wisdom. People would gather to listen to them. And so Paul says, I didn't come with persuasive words. That's not what I came to impress you with my rhetoric. He says, actually, if I came with persuasive words and spent all my time using the tricks of the trade, smoke machines and videos and bright lights, he says, the danger is I'll empty the cross of its power, which is a challenge to perhaps churches and Christians today. We think the bigger the conference, the brighter the lights, the bigger the stage, the more impressive the media. The, the, I've seen, a, you know, during lockdown, we've, all, we've been to every church on the planet on the internet, haven't we? I've seen churches with smoke machines and hazes at the, at the pastor's feet as while he speaks. If you rely on those tricks, Paul says you're in danger of emptying the cross of its power. St. Anselm of Canterbury, uh, he was once offered um, to to move to England and to take over the, the Archbishopric of Canterbury to become in charge of the English church. And his response was to cry, to weep, because he said essentially, my Lord was a penniless slave, and I, a powerless individual, and, and you're elevating me to a position of power? No, the cross is wisdom. It's opposite to the wisdom of the world. See, when you become a Christian, the game that you're playing and therefore, the toys that you're chasing need to change. Just as it needed to change for the Corinthians. It's like when you first learned about golf. You know, every other game you'd heard of until then, the more points, the better. And then someone teaches you how to play golf. You think, so now it's the fewer the points, the better. That's confusing. Or I don't know if you remember um, the board game that you was out a couple of decades ago now um, called Go For Broke. The idea of the game was to make a million pounds, and then as soon as you'd made a million pounds, the winner was the person to get rid of all their money the fastest. And once that person had reached that mark, that milestone of a million pounds in the game, everybody else was now having to play that game of getting rid of their money rather than trying to accrue wealth. And if you hadn't realized that someone had got a million pounds and was trying to get rid of it, and you were still trying to gain wealth, you were going to be playing the wrong game. You are going to be scoring points against yourself. Let the wisdom of the cross work its way through you so that the values of the world get unpicked, undone, overturned. We don't seek status or privilege or performance or renown or power in the way that the world did. See, the cross outsmarts human wisdom, but it also overpowers human strength. In the church, there were factions and divisions, people fighting over status and position, 
boasting about or climbing after their status. But what really is the pursuit of status all about? The pursuit often of power and influence over a people. Every human being on the planet wants good social status. To experience the opposite social shame is crippling. People's bodies literally curl up when they feel so rejected and shamed by people. So we seek um, acceptance and security and approval by people is not wrong. But the attempts of society and wisdom to get that, the power that we use, is compared to God's power shown to be weakness. Paul says that the cross satisfies a deep ache that ache for dignity that we all long for, that ache for status, that all of the attempts of the world will never be able to fix or remove that ache. That's the power of the cross. You know, it's interesting, that verse that uh, I read out where he says, I didn't come with, um, oh, I should read it, otherwise it's got, I won't be able to remember it, but I didn't come with words of, um, a demo- let's read it. <laughs> He says, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the, of the spirit and of power, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You know, most commentators believe differently to how most of us read that. We read that and go, I didn't come with persuasive words, I came with a demonstration of the spirit of power. He's talking about miracles. The way Paul convinced the church was with a display of miracles. Whereas actually, a few verses before that, he says Jews demand signs and we don't give it to them. They demand miracles and the cross doesn't do that. Now to be clear, the the Holy Spirit does enable us to perform signs and wonders and miracles in his name. But what Paul's talking about here in the context is, I didn't come with demonstration of power, miracles and signs of wonders. I came with the power of God, which is the cross. The demonstration of the Spirit's power is a revelation of the cross because it is the power of God to fill and fix that ache that you and I have for dignity and for status. The, um, one of the best books I've read this year, um, Francis Fukuyama's book on identity. is a subtitle, Contemporary Identity Politics and the Struggle for Recognition. Very good book. He's, as far as I'm aware, he's not a Christian, but he covers a lot of history and Christian history, basically to understand what's going on in our society at the moment. And he identifies it as this, that there is a part of the human soul, the Greeks call it thymos, that is a desire for dignity and recognition. And what's happened in the last hundred years, and it seems to be gathering speed, is the protest movements in the West are all around this desire and need that we have for dignity. And that's where a lot of the things taking place in society are fighting on that front. He says, think about it. The civil rights movement, the women's rights movement, has fought, fought in this area. Dignity. Treat me as a, as a valuable human being. But increasingly other things, so the gay rights movements and now increasingly the trans rights movements, is about that. It's not about is it right or wrong. It's about am I a valuable human being to you? There's such an ache and a longing in the human heart that every 
choice or thing that we can put our hands to, we can turn into being about my dignity. If you deny me this, you're denying me value, denying me dignity and worth. And that's such a core, core fundamental human need to deny that from someone is seen as monstrous. So we fight, fight to be respected, fight that people would see us as being wise or as, you know, we fight for wealth, we fight for power, we, we do that. Those are the revolutions going on around the world. But listen to the revolution of the cross. This is what he says. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before the Lord. The Apostle Paul doesn't puff them up by saying, you thought you were low-born, but you're actually not. You're lovely. You thought that people treated you badly, but they didn't. It's society that needs to change. You're fine. He doesn't. He names it. He says, you are not, you're not wise. You're foolish. You're not of noble birth. You're a thing that is not you're not of any significance. It doesn't puff them up the way a lot of our self-esteem speak puffs up our generation. No, he does the opposite. He says, this is what you are, but in that low-born status, society had rejected you, but your dignity and worth doesn't come from there because, he says, God chose the things that were not, the things that are despised. He chose them. And I think therein lies the revolution of the power of the cross to meet that deep ache. Next, in chapter 3, verse 16, he says, moving on for that, God chose you as you were. And then in, in, in chapter 3, he then says, Do you not know that you are now God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? And then in verse 21 of that same chapter, all things are yours. He says, the cross meets you where you're at. It calls a spade a spade, a sinner a sinner, a thing that is not, a thing that's not, a foolish person a foolish He calls it, but then he chooses it to, for himself, and in so choosing, he fills you with his spirit, and then you become, we are, the temple of God on the earth, the place where the living God dwells. No pilgrimages necessary, just come to church every Sunday. Hallelujah. Some people save all their pennies and do all they can to go on these hikes and pilgrimages and go to Mecca and pray five times a day and do all these different almsgivings and sacrificial this and that, sacrificial that, in order to find God. Paul says, you're the temple of God. You're it. What that means is that you can be treated poorly. You can be disrespected. You can be denied value by society and by people but you can still know power and joy because of him. In the next chapter, which we'll save for next week, Paul says, we apostles are like the scum of the earth. And yet, when we're reviled, we bless people. When we're persecuted, we endure. How can he do that? Because all things are mine in Christ. All things are yours in Christ. This is the wisdom and this is the power of the cross that it transforms who you are, how you see yourself. It meets you as you are 
and lifts you up because of Christ, because of the cross. When Jesus died a barbaric and evil death on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem, God flipped the world on its head like a double-sided board game and he said, here's what we're playing now. Status counts for nothing. Sin is an entry requirement. But holiness and honor and status in the kingdom is what he's leading you to. And he calls you today, rethink everything in light of the cross. Jesus is here to save and to give you wisdom and has the power you need to know your value and worth because of Christ in you that is the hope of glory. Let's pray.